do better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. Welcome, welcome to the Asade Innovation Podcast. Today we have with us Carlos Escapa. Carlos has a background in computer science and AI, of course, and has been working in many companies in multinationals, also uh, has been participating in some startups and one of them that he co-founded, particularly all this work in Silicon Valley. Some of these companies, you will know them very well because they have very well-known well names so, such as Amazon, Meta, and, and uh, BeerWare, and many others. So, welcome, Carlos. Happy to have you here. Hi, Esteban. Great to be here. Fantastic. Uh, so our first question is, before talking about AI and so on, we, we would like to know a little bit more about your experience, your experience in working in tech multinationals. We always think of these companies as high-performance companies, as wonderful companies, super efficient, that uh, they reap uh, without any red tape, that they reap any possible bit of efficiency that they can't and so on. Maybe reality is not like that, but what did you experience of all this? There's certainly a very high speed of execution in the big tech companies, and that definitely plays very much into the productivity in just about every measure in terms of uh, revenue per employee, profit per employee, and so on. It is, it is really high. If you actually peel the onion and look into how exactly this happens, the business models tend to be highly scalable. Uh, and they actually have a very low cost of, for uh, incremental dollar or euro of revenue. Uh, and this is actually generates a very healthy cash flow in, in the big tech companies. Re regarding the cultures, they tend to be very flat, I would say. Flat is probably not a good description. It, I, I would say they are unhierarchical, where the hierarchy doesn't really matter. The organization is very malleable. Uh, work teams are uh, basically very dynamic and people join one or two or three, sometimes even five different projects working at the same time. And then you have a lot of uh, very good tooling available that allows these uh, teams to operate at very fast pace. And a lot of the work that takes place in big tech is asynchronous. It is does not require a meeting where everybody has to be present or at the same time in order to make decisions, big decisions can be made asynchronously working across teams. And then, like I said, there is very sophisticated tooling that allows, that enables the communication to happen, the, the, for the decisions to be auditable, for the interaction with the back office between the business development and sales and the back office like finance and legal. It is... Uh, I would say faster than it is in other companies, and this is what creates that uh, that productivity. That's fantastic. One of the nice experience of these companies is that they are like an atalaya, a previous way, a previous place to see how the future of work will be, and and this is going to change our fast. This is going to change our companies. And uh, what do you think is this future of work? Does it fit the way all these companies work? 
Yes, uh, there's definitely a very big evolution in this uh, regard. So the, the work from anywhere and participate from anywhere, the inclusivity, the globality of the business processes is definitely, definitely underpinned by all of these tools that allow the person-to-person communications. And we're beginning to see uh, with COVID that, for instance, Zoom became a huge um, and, and you know, the cohort of similar tools, but this is now being extended more and more so that uh, you, you have a whole set of uh, ways to uh, work on documents together simultaneously by a whole group of people. And then for that to become a decision-making element of some workflow, and then there's automation integrating that workflow into some contractualization uh, processes that happen with the back office. And, and this is actually beginning to happen more and more smoothly. Uh, so you you have to look at the human interaction evolving and, and being more asynchronous, uh, having video injected into the business processes, as well as that uh, tie-in or that interface with uh, workflow products that are being used uh, for uh, to, to drive the business. Uh, and very recently, uh, technologies that are coming to fore have to do with expanding our 2D into 3D. This is this is going to be quite interesting to see. Um, the metaverse type of technology is beginning to be adopted. Uh, it, it is more than just a pilot. It is actually available already. And this is obviously the big tech companies tend to adopt these technologies rather quickly and iterate very fast because they are contributing to the to, the, to their development. So we will see a lot of evolution. Uh, the future of work is going to be quite fun, if you will, uh, because uh, very soon this two-dimensional interaction through a screen is going to begin to look old and probably in two or three years it will look arcane when we look at uh, the, the 3D capabilities that will come very soon to, to products. So think about, you know, if, if you think about Zoom in three dimensions, you will be able to have uh, uh, documents, facial expressions, uh, you will be able to hear more uh, background noise or... Um, we will be able to expand the, the communication. Very little of the human interaction actually happens through language. Uh, it's less than 50%, probably more like 20%, as a matter of fact. And this is something that perhaps we have missed a little bit with, with Zoom. So there's going to be a, a significantly richer amount of communication between people that uh, will happen as we adopt uh, these, new, these new technologies. Um, and who knows? The, the, there is really... Um, a lot of speculation about how the metaverse is going to affect uh, work, but there is no doubt that it is going to change uh, very significantly. Think, for instance, about simultaneous translation that is going to come as well. Uh, so it's going to become a lot simpler, a lot easier to work with people across countries and, and even across cultures. So uh, I feel very excited about it and really look forward to it. That looks fascinating. And well, probably this future is going to be many, many things and going to change so many things of our work. Let's start with AI and computer science, computer engineering in general. You had this wonderful opportunity, like me, like many other people, to see this evolution from mainframes to mini computers to mini computers to data centers, data centers now the cloud, and now with the cloud, specialized processors where these general processor that did everything. Now it's becoming more and more specialized processors for training deep learning, executing deep learning, communication, whatever. Tell us a bit about this evolution that uh, probably has been fascinating for all of us. 
Well, it has been really a massive uh, change uh, since I started my career. I was actually a, a software engineer for infrastructure products. So I actually was uh, writing um, systems management type of products when I started in, in, my, in my field. And I did catch the end of the mainframe era, actually. So I, am, I, I, I did work on monolithic architectures uh, way back when. Um, evidently, very quickly, the personal computing era has started uh, as I was coming to, to the market in my first few jobs. Uh, so that gave rise to networking and connectivity becoming crucial parts of our IT infrastructure. And that was the, the birth of the Internet in, in the 1990s. And with the proliferation of devices, as, as you pointed out, mainframes, mini computers, we have the different data centers, as well as um, compute uh, in personal devices, not only PCs, you know, over time, uh, obviously telephones uh, and um, other edge computing started to to become um, used in production, then that gave rise to a, a holistic approach to systems management and then the, the need for virtualization that created a very big opportunity that later translated into, into cloud and the ability to manage computing resources at uh, hyperscale and bring it all together. Um, Something that was happening in parallel is that the growth of storage and particularly the, the much lower cost of storage uh, in, in every new generation gave rise to what came to be known as, as big data. And from big data, we started to see more and more tools in analytics. And that that's what uh, enabled machine learning and deep learning and artificial intelligence. And there's been an acceleration of both, uh, you know, the, the ability to have compute at very large scale and data at very large scale is what has given rise to a, a new generation of tools um, and, and products. And this is where we have seen a, an entire um, revolution, if you will, coming on the back of um, AI. And, and we see a lot of excitement in, in that market. Uh, it's, well, it's beyond excitement. It is actually tangible. These, these, are, these are products that are redefining industries altogether, all uh, particularly the, the recommendation engines that uh, have been used so successfully by companies like Amazon, uh, Facebook, and so on, in, in order to drive a massive shareholder value uh, through them by inserting inferences into business processes um, and yet we we come now to the beginning of this new era of having more ai embedded in in applications where we see specialized hardware coming to assist ai because ai is very power hungry um, and, and it's difficult to scale uh, the, these applications so we, we are seeing um, new hardware coming to help. This uh, new hardware actually is a little bit fragmented at the moment. It's a little unwieldy, but uh, we, we are actually investing quite a lot in making it easier to develop uh, AI applications and uh, run them in production. So it feels like a long evolution from mainframes to this world where computing is ubiquitous. It is uh, uh, happening in, in devices all over our homes, uh, in, in our offices, and everything is sort of tied together and um, companies are able to build um, business value and create uh, new uses for the technology almost on on a daily basis. Uh, absolutely, it's fascinating how in in a lifetime all these things change so much, and also uh, sometimes we, we we think that we are just in the beginning. 
that we didn't see anything, that what is ahead of us is incredible. One of these thinking, one of the, the important criteria of this thing is that some people believe that this AI is going to be as powerful as humans. And they talk about generalized AI. I know that this is one of your favorite subjects. And uh, some people think that we will never reach that level. Some people think that we will reach that level in 10 years or even shorter. And, uh, well, you have opinions for everything. What is your position on that? Yeah, um, I use the term AI because that is what has been come to be known in, in the industry. But I think it is a misnomer. Yeah, and we don't do justice to the field by calling it artificial intelligence because it is not intelligence. It, it really is not. And we use uh, terms like neural networks that have very little to do with the neurons in, 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 in our heads. So we're using a set of uh, mathematical approaches to deal with data that allow us to do things that we did not expect computers to do in the past. And they seem almost magical, like uh, recognizing objects or producing speech, uh, but they are nothing more than using statistical inferencing with very large volumes of data. Uh, the, the, the cognition that we have, the identification of uh, concepts and objects, abstractions, and the reasoning that happens behind those abstractions, uh, we don't do them in, in artificial uh, intelligence. I wish we didn't call it artificial intelligence. I wish we called it something like artificial inferencing, for instance, that would be more accurate, but that, that's just the way it is. Um, with regard to general intelligence, I that's science fiction. Arti artificial general intelligence is science fiction. Um, there is uh, very little that we really understand about how our brain works. Today, I would say that we know how a kidney works and we can do a dialysis machine, for instance. Uh, we know very well how a heart works and we can actually build artificial hearts. But we really do not understand how the, the brain works. And you can ask almost any neuroscientist, that will, he will tell you that we're probably decades, if not centuries, away from really getting a grasp as to what is going on in, in our brains. So AGI, I know that I'm going against the grain here and many people, many of my colleagues might disagree with me vehemently, but I, that, that is just not what we do at the moment. And the, the, the sooner we bring down to earth uh, these concepts, I think it's going to be better for people, uh, for the common citizens to understand what this technology does and, and how, it, uh, how it does it. And we should also stop doing stunts, you know, like uh, phoning somebody to get a hair appointment. It's cute, okay? But there is absolutely no conceptual understanding in the machine of what it is doing. It is just a simulation of, uh, of a human activity. Uh, there's something called Maravec's uh, paradox that I think that it would be interesting to, to mention in this podcast, Maravec, uh, M-A-R-A-V-E-C. This paradox actually... Uh, brings a light, shines a light on the fact that for AI, it is relatively easy to do things that uh, human beings have learned to do in the last 100,000 years or so, which is deal with, uh, with mathematics, uh, with logic, with uh, gaming, for instance. AI is very good at doing that. But if you look at very basic functions of what humans do, something as simple as holding a mouse and moving it uh, in front of our eyes or, or, or catching it, 
right? This is extremely hard to do with AI, almost impossible. It's something that we haven't learned to do reliably. Um, and anything that has to do with relating actions to the field of vision or to our hearing, it is also extremely hard to do with, with AI. We haven't really made a, a lot of progress in, in, in that area. And I think that is because, or rather the speculation behind Maravec's paradox is that the two or three billion years of evolution since life started in, in, on planet Earth actually has been coded into signals that are happening very deep inside our bodies. And these are not electrical signals only. We're talking about uh, electrochemical signals. And there is a whole soup of uh, um, biochemical agents um, interacting. And sometimes they are as small as, as proteins or DNA. Sometimes entire cells participate in, in these processes. So we are a long, long ways away from understanding what, what, uh, how that happens. So I am a very big skeptic on, on AGI. I don't think we will see it in our lifetimes. Um, machine learning is real. That is absolutely um, a, a field that is exciting, that it is an, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of progress around it. And this is what we see now being used to build the enterprises uh, of the future. Yeah, certainly. Uh, people in artificial intelligence probably are as good marketers as they are in artificial intelligence. In the beginning, the choice of words was uh, cyber, uh, cybernetics or artificial intelligence. And of course, people choose artificial intelligence, way more catchy. And now we talk about neural networks. Well, it's more like a linear regression, but they were a network. But come on, neural network is way more catchy. <laughs> and deep learning, well... Many layers, but deep, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that, if that deep. And so on and so forth. We always try to fit this hype machine. Uh, since the beginning, the demonstrations, the Alan Kay demonstration, exciting the imagination of people. So we are good marketers. <laughs> that's, that's the key. <laughs> that's the key. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, even the concept of learning is very limited. Uh, when, when it comes to, to, to what we do, we, we use the term machine learning um, is very different from what we understand human learning to be. Yeah. Uh, the, the most interesting part here is that our brain functions at something like 15 to 20 watts of energy. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's, that's all we use. And we can do really incredible things. The, these um, emulations that we do with, with software that we call AI, um, it can use four, five, six times more orders of magnitude. <clears throat> so to just, just to train a model, for instance, I think the audience may be interested in, in this um, datum. Uh, we are talking about hundreds of megawatt hours mm -hmm. to, to train a model. Um, and think about the autonomous vehicles. We have billions and billions of kilometers of training data and yet we have 18, 16 year olds, they actually drive for 50 or 100 kilometers and then they mm -hmm. pass a test and we trust them yeah. with, with the vehicle. Uh, so it, it really is a different, uh, it's not the same learning. Um, yeah, we are extremely efficient in learning. <laughs> Machines but are imagine, not. Absolutely, but imagine that instead of learning, we, we say, oh, we just uh, find out hyperparameters or calculate weights. Uh, it's not that catchy. It's not that cool. <laughs> that, it's more here. <laughs> <laughs>
learning excites the imagination as if we were learning really something instead of yes finding the best parameter that that fits whatever and, and so on <coughs> one more thing one one thing one area that's changed so much is cloud cloud is rewriting everything rewriting system engineering data centers and data engineering and all these all these kind of things because you have all these opportunities or these possibilities of specialized processors of uh, uh, networks that you cannot even dream in your company because they have this extremely high bandwidth that you cannot even think that you can pay it um, different types of architectures and it's not only changing the, the, the speed and the capacity of all this it's changing also the way that we think of computer engineering because now it's like combining blocks of things that are more or less pre-made uh, uh, pre and, and that's very different from the uh, let's install uh, uh, our relational database and then you come there and install the relational database. How do you see this experience and this transformation? That now it's even more than that because we have edge computing, computing some very different levels in different layers and devices and well, it's fascinating in many ways. How do you see all this? Well, yeah, clearly cloud has been a complete game changer. It's been one of the major driving forces of um, value creation in, at the beginning of the 21st century. The, the fact that you do not have capital costs associated with starting a new venture or a new project, um, you, you, you can use on-demand resources, stand them up, use them, and then stand them down if it doesn't work or scale them up if they do is a has been a major factor in reducing risk associated with projects as a matter of fact if, if you are a startup today and you go to a venture capitalist and you tell them that you want to build your own data center in order to refine your company they they will not invest in you they <laughs> say you must be crazy i don't want that kind of risk i don't want that kind of capital expenditure um, go and do it in a cloud provider uh, prove that it works over there. And then if you reach humongous scale and the numbers make sense, maybe we will consider a future funding round where we can uh, buy some hardware, but not, not at the moment, not for the next uh, four or five years. This is, this is uh, what, what cloud has enabled. Um, in parallel, the cloud has actually become huge in terms of the span of building blocks that are available. It, if you look back in 2007, when Amazon Web Services started, it was only storage. There was not even any compute available, right? It was only storage. Then a few months or maybe a year later, they added compute, but only Linux, okay? And only one kind of machine. Today, this has absolutely blossomed. There is multiple cloud providers. Um, uh, we have, well, I guess three major plus two smaller one in the West. Uh, and a myriad of much smaller ones. And then we have some three or four gigantic ones in China, right? And so th this is now a very mature, it has become a very mature industry where you can buy, I mean, sorry, you can rent uh, just about any kind of processor that you might uh, need from ARM to GPUs. Uh, and then you can also procure storage and networking practically limitless. There's very few companies on earth today that would actually exhaust the capacity that the, or that would challenge even the, the capacity available in, in the cloud providers. 
so this is what has given rise to these very big startup programs, right? And the cloud providers, all of them have specialized teams who work with entrepreneurs that are getting started. And as a matter of fact, uh, they, the, the, these graduates, if you will, the companies that start in cloud providers that become very big are actually some of the biggest customers of the cloud providers. I'm thinking about Netflix or Pinterest and and so on, this, this, this class of uh, companies. Uh, and, and the progress continues. And in, interestingly, since we talked about uh, AI in the previous um, question, you have a whole set of now of a specialized uh, accelerated computing coming through cloud that allows that, you know, the elasticity provided by the cloud is really important when you're training machine learning models. Um, the availability of data in, in very large amounts, pipelining the data, transforming it and preparing it uh, for training requires uh, very high scale resources. So the, the, the cloud actually is uh, accelerating the adoption uh, of, of AI and the new specialized accelerated computing is hopefully going to continue to drive down the cost and the CO2 emissions associated with AI. One of the most, for me, one of the most interesting things that is happening here is the specialized, the pre-made specialized AI solutions that uh, cloud companies are offering. Now they're offering not only recommenders that they had since quite some years that you just, with a single line of Python, you just launch a fantastic recommender even without knowing anything about uh, recommenders. But uh, you have forecasting, you have all the tools that you use in, a, in the shop floor for fault detection, for... And, and this is increasing and increasing and increasing. In many ways, it's democratizing uh, this AI uh, because it allows people that without knowing much to enter and use this world and use top-class products. How do you see this phenomenon in, in, in the future? There is a lot of... Um... Uh, there has been for 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 a few years the this concept of auto ml right where you just bring the data and then a, a model comes out uh, in you know in, in practice this kind of works but if you really want a very highly specialized solution or something that provides a lot of differentiation for your company auto ml is not good enough you have to graduate and actually do your own thing you have to do your your own um, machine learning with uh, with with your data so the entry-level products that are available such as transcription translation object identification and so on those are now available via apis they have been available via apis from the major cloud providers and as a matter of fact they, that is a commoditized uh, market at the moment and, and they're very they're plentiful they are cheap uh, you know, they, they, they continue to make progress with them. For instance, the translation is good between some languages, but not so good between, for instance, mm -hmm. English to Spanish, very good. Um, Japanese to English, not as good. Uh, it's um, it's still a field that needs to, to evolve quite a lot. Um, what I see is that those companies that want to build a moat around their business and they are using artificial intelligence in order to power their value proposition. Uh, th their focus really is on the data. And if you really, really look deep down into what makes them different, it, it is the labeling of the data. That is where the competitive advantage comes in. If you have several years of having a expertise 
human expertise applied to a, a training set that then you, you, know, you build a product with, that gives you differentiation and allows you to compete in a different level with, uh, with other companies. So the, the cloud products, you have to understand that if, if it looks too easy, that is probably because it doesn't give you differentiation. Therefore, if you are an entrepreneur, you have to be a little critical about uh, those canned solutions. Uh, the, the, it is still the case, and I think it will always be, that the hard work of manipulating data is what pays in terms of getting models and building differentiable products and services that allow you to build value and, uh, and, and have a very competitive company. Uh, that's fantastic, Carlos. Well, one thing, uh, computer engineering and cloud is changing, but companies are also changing. And uh, companies are changing because we, we take functions that before were done by people and we put them into code. And with that, we get certain marginal costs, incredible scalability. We have all these, all these things. But in companies, much of what it was the exploitation of the company, the operations, and so now it's in code. I mean, who is planning things in in the Amazon <laughs> warehouses? Well, probably it's code. Who is moving things? Well, the the kibas, the robots are, are, are moving things, and all these kind of things. Uh, how do you see this transformation in in the company structure? I would say the the instrumentation of our lives is what is generating a lot of data that can be harvested. Uh, um, and when you have empirical data that uh, allows you to understand the context around a human activity or, or a workflow, uh, then you can actually apply automation, automation and, and tools that can understand and codify the, the workflow that, uh, that, that, that you have instrumented. Um, therefore, the proliferation of devices, particularly mobile devices, is what has given us a, a much deeper view into what happens and then understand certain phenomena that we can uh, focus in and improve or optimize or completely automate. And this is what, uh, what we see happening now quite, uh, quite, quite rapidly in, in many different areas. Uh, what I just said is a little bit abstract, uh, so let me try to land it with uh, a couple of examples. Um, we have now several companies that are building solutions that are uh, like real-time coaches. So they actually can listen to an interaction like the one that we have at the moment and provide recommendations on the screen, on the interlocutor, uh, so that, for instance, a salesperson does not forget to mention a feature to a customer or has um, potential pricing information based on the interaction that happens between the salesperson and, uh, the, and the customer and can even go into giving a warning if there is confidential information being shared or that could be potentially uh, compliance uh, sensitive. Uh, so the, the ability to instrument these interactions and then provide uh, real-time feedback is going to be one of the ways that we can inject um, a, well, basically more value into these interactions and therefore uh, more, more productivity. 
Um, another example of this might be think about some of the activities that, that we do that are highly specialized, uh, say a, a surgeon. When they are actually operating on a patient, uh, it is it is possible now through computer vision to analyze what the surgeon is doing and actually provide a voice with advice regarding what it is that the, the surgeon is doing, um, identify vessels, identify organs, uh, provide um, additional information about uh, the condition that the organs are found, or even, so this is actually a real-time advisor, right? Coming um, uh, to, to, to an operating room. Uh, this is not science fiction. This is actually happening in uh, to today. There, there are uh, companies like that uh, that have been created in, in the past couple of years. Um, so th this is very, going to be profoundly transformative when we, when we bring this kind of uh, solutions to, to market. The, just about every field that you can instrument is potentially subject to improvement or disruption. Anything that you can instrument when once you collect the data, if you have, if you build the pipelines and uh, you have a team of people who can do a, a very deep analysis of them, that will generate business opportunities. Yeah. Fantastic. The jobs in the in the computer industry they are also changing, and uh, we are far away from the early days that we had uh, Google founders building computers and assembling computers and buying CPUs, God knows where, in order to make things cheaper and so on. One of these changing roles is the role of the chief technology officer of the CTO and so on. How do you think? How do you see this this role in the future of cloud? edge computing, many processors, AI, pre-made AI solutions. Wow, what a different world. What a good question. It's becoming harder and harder to predict the future, right? Even even just a few months down. You know, we have, we're having this conversation in May 2022. I would say that six months ago, nobody would have guessed that we would have a war in Europe uh, at, at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. um, CTOs are definitely increasing their the, the responsibility and their profile in, in the companies. Uh, the, the fact that so much of the innovation and uh, what the new things that we do in the world are the result of uh, new data flows, new application, um, assembling these myriad tools available now in cloud and uh, collecting information from so many different sources. Uh, the, the CTO definitely has a higher responsibility and a higher profile in the company. As, as well as CTO cannot be a master of all trades. The, therefore, the, the, the CTOs are definitely evolving towards uh, people with, with vision that have the ability to make very big bets. And very often they have to jump into uh, the pursuit of a given path of of product discovery without necessarily knowing whether or not they can get there. Uh, so, so part of the of what the CTO in the future is going to is going to have to be is, is going to be a master manager of experiments where there may be potentially 
dozens, if not hundreds of initiatives, uh, technological initiatives taking place in, in the company and making sure that he has the right leaders to, to lead those initiatives and then coach them and help them to identify the most promising ones and also to cut those ones uh, whose uh, development or, or, or likelihood of success are, are not uh, deemed to be uh, high. Um, then behind all of this, uh, which is a little bit very forward thinking, the CTO has to be very forward thinking, uh, there's also a very big need to keep the feet very close to you know the ground because there is a production aspect, there is a reliability, there is a security uh, requirement that is super strong and it's, it's, it's only going to get stronger as, as we go by. Uh, cybersecurity is a very, very serious subject and it is going to continue to be even more so uh, for, for the CTOs in, in the future. So having a very strong vision um, and then being able to take uh, products and concepts from prototype to production very, very quickly is, is definitely going to be one of the key attributes of the CTO of the future. I can see that being a key interview question for, for a, somebody who is being considered to be a CTO in, in a new company. Uh, and then lastly, I would say that the CTO has to be more and more focused on employee productivity. Uh, you asked me a little bit earlier about the future of work. Um, if, if you do not keep up with the competition in terms of the tooling available to employees, the productivity will suffer and that will translate very quickly into earnings per share and, uh, and, and, uh, and share value, right? Um, Therefore, the, the CTO is also, in, in addition to what I mentioned about having a vision, translating vision to production very, very quickly, maintaining a very efficient uh, workplace environment is also very much going to be part of uh, the CTO's uh, responsibility. Um, now, beyond the, the next few years, it's very difficult to, to actually say, you know, the CTO in five to 10 years, I, I, I would struggle to give you an answer regarding the metaverse, for instance, I I don't know. We're you know we're building this. Uh, uh, many people are collaborating in building this together. It's going to have a very big effect in the role of the CTO. But at the moment, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how that is going to be. But they will have a lot of fun. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the future is going to be very exciting. Well, uh, thank you so much, Carlos. It has been a privilege to have you here to have all these insights about uh, all these different subjects from, from the jobs of the future to the CTO, to the computer architecture, to cloud and to AI. Uh, it's a privilege to have somebody like you that has so much experience in so many markets and some of the top markets of the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, My pleasure, uh, Steve. Thank you uh, to you all, to everybody, and uh, let's see very soon in our new podcast. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. Do Better.